Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast. My name is George Miller, and I'm delighted to say that my guest on this programme was also the interviewee in my very first Faber podcast over five years ago, Nobel laureate Orhan Pamuk. In 2007, I spoke to Orhan about his collection of essays, Other Colours, and when we met at Faber's offices late last month, it was to discuss Silent House, his second novel, which originally appeared in Turkish some 30 years ago, and is now available in English for the first time. The book is set in the summer before the 1980 military coup. Turkey is a divided country, and political tensions daily spill over into violence on the streets. Each morning the papers tally up the death toll on either side. In a crumbling old house, redolent of mildew, linens and childhood, in a fishing village turned fashionable resort near Istanbul, Fatma, a widow in her nineties, awaits the annual summer visit of her grandchildren. The family's story is told from multiple viewpoints by five different narrators, and travels backwards in time too to capture the hopes and plans of Fatma's late husband, an idealistic doctor who dreamed of modernising his country by writing a vast encyclopaedia that would drag Turkey into the 20th century. By 1980, young people such as Metin, Fatma's youngest grandchild, dream instead of escaping the country altogether and going to America, while Hassan, the nephew of Fatma's housekeeper, has fallen in with right-wing extremists who are intent on changing the country by any means they can. And as the story unfolds, personal tensions as well as political ones come to the fore. In the interview, we discuss whether Orhan felt he was writing a political book in the early 80s, and examine some of the tensions of Turkish history he wanted to explore. I began, though, by asking him about revising the book for its first appearance in English. Well, I revisited the book with the intention of going over the translation and slightly touching here and there, very lightly, and also adding chapter headings. One reason for the need to retouch it is that some of the details, period details, are over and are forgotten even by the Turkish readers, such as that at that time there was an extensive street fights between the Marxists, Marxist militants and right-wing militants killing each other in the streets, and the country was in a way traumatized, paralyzed by that, when two characters, Nilgün and his brother, speak about the killing, uh, how many today, they actually refer to how many people were shot in the streets of Istanbul today, or in Turkey today. Uh, this is obvious for the readers of that time, but not obvious even for the Turkish readers and international readers now. So added this kind of little explanatory notes to the novel, and deleted this or that in a very minor way. So my additions, little deletes, can be perhaps no more than three pages, and also I added chapter headings. I'm happy that I did it. Added, I think, to, far, to the longevity of the book. Another thing that I became aware of is that Istanbul grew so much in the last 30 years that the city I wrote about in 1982, the city of Istanbul in early 1980s, grew so much that this ex-fisherman's village, then a fancy summer resort of the upper classes, is now swallowed by the expanding city. It's part of Istanbul. All these fig, fig trees, olive trees, shanty houses, little factories, production units, remains of old 
buildings, ruins, and the summer resort and the small remains of fishermen's village and the beach are now almost swallowed up by high rises and the expanding city. That was amazing. I always consider myself lucky that I have I've been living in Istanbul. I was born into Istanbul. There's a million, and now it's 14 million. On the other hand, the book has not changed too much by political, cultural problems that of desiring the West and that of resistance to Westernization from the state, from the ruling elites, has been the main problem of politics in Turkey. That still continues. And did you feel as though you were returning to your preoccupations as a novelist, as a, as as your younger self too? Was it was it interesting to go back and see how you had how you had made that book? I really didn't read it as a young person's book, really. I was just reading it as some other novel's book, an interesting book, where I did my best to identify with the characters, or the novelist did his best to identify with his characters. I respect that. I still operate, my mind still operates that, that I want, if I want to do a portrait of a character, I look at him or her, can I make her talk? Can I make her see the things that she's seeing every day? Can I make this person, can I be that person? I say to myself, this kind of thing. First person, singular, multi-voiced book. I did this later in My Name is Red in a more complex way, even making trees and objects and coins speak. This is also in that line. I'm also writing my new novel, Estrangeness in My Mind, also with the same logic. There are more than many narrators who are filling the gaps of the whole picture from first-person singulars. When I read the book, I see problems or joys of that. And the second thing is, we call this inner monologue. It's not actually monologue, what passes in our heads. It's a convention of literary technique. Actually, when the thoughts we entertain in ourselves, in our minds, mostly is a, is a dialogue with an imaginary person. Yes, when we see a sign saying bathroom and an arrow, we say, oh, here's the bathroom. We don't even say that. We follow that arrow. There's no sentence in our heads. But when we're thinking, when we are answering things, when we are making, talking to ourselves, we are actually talking to a person, real or imaginary, to a text. We answer something back. I think my characters in Silent House are doing inner dialogues with real or imaginary persons or texts or some generalizations. That's how, that's how we think. There is a sense of always in the so-called inner monologue, a sense of dialogue. They are arguing in their so-called inner monologues. Actually, they're arguing with someone. And in fact, they also give voice to that argue, uh, two sides of discussion. But of course, they're manipulating their discussions with this imaginary person in a way that reveals the bad faith, the structure of human mind, or more particularly, the structure of our thinking. In all this sense, I was busy reinventing my way of inner monologue or inner dialogue, where we do this all the time. In the end, literary creativity is discovering something we all know we do, while the established rules of writing or representing does not allow us to perceive. The little thing I did this in 
so-called stream of consciousness. I don't like that. And my book is not a stream of consciousness. It is a carefully composed inner monologues, no, inner dialogues put together in between descriptions and normal daily life dialogue. And, and that dialogue, as you say, allows you freedom to go back into the past, to interweave that with the present, and also to, to project into the future. There are, there are characters who are, who are projecting fantasies of their, of their future selves, as, as well as characters who are looking back and recovering their, their past ones. Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, once wrote, made a comment, more or less, words to the point, uh, to the effect that only happy people live in present, unhappy people either live in the past or in the future. It's obvious the atmosphere of this novel is a lot of unhappiness, which I try to balance with humor, uh, with realism of daily dialogue, and with the almost thriller-like action, where a fa- I mean, where a ho- uh, the history of a family is revealed. Mm-hmm. And you were writing about a political climate when you were very close in time to it. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it was only a couple of years on, I think, from from the coup mm-hmm. when you when you when you published this book. Did did that make it difficult, or did, did it no. make it easier? In fact, I was writing first when I published this book. No one considered political in Turkey in you know, nineteen eighty-three. I agree that the level of politics was so high at that time, but it's most of it is throwing stones to the enemy kind of propaganda politics, which I don't like. So I, uh, when I published this book, I was criticized for being apolitical by the previous generation of writers. In fact, right before the military coup, I started a real political novel among young, uh, young bourgeois, uh, my generation, sons of rich people who were also uh, aspiring to do a um, sort of a Marxist re- revolution when their some fathers go to their summer resorts they would uh, invade the winter houses and play the revolutionary or also dreaming of throwing bombs to the prime minister that kind of thing once there was a military coup i realized that i cannot publish that and stop that novel and begin writing this book thinking this is not political. And I agree it's not political and didn't have any problems because there is nothing here in this book that challenges the army's power and the military. And I didn't have any problem with uh, with the book. Now we see this book is more political than it is because some of the characters in the book, say the right-wing nationalist who is resentful of Western civilization, was not a scary thing for the Turkish establishment because they were not strong then. But now they have such prominent space in not only Turkish politics, but international politics. We identify them with more political anxiety. And the politics in the book is more visible. But when I wrote the book, I didn't particularly think that I would be in trouble. That's the right world. You may be political, but you may not be in trouble. You may be not apolitical, but you may end up in in trouble. The voice of right wing, uh, the would be right wing terrorists or a resentful high school would be dropout. Um, Hassan is based on the confessions of Turkish right wingers, shooters, killers of the period. Uh, right after the 1980 military coup. The soldiers did not only round up the Marxists or the lefties, but also round up some of the right-wing um, shooters, killers, 
and they were forthcoming in their confessions, which were published in the newspapers. And I confess that I took in a lot of interest, even enjoyed reading them. Voice of the Hassan, his hesitations, of course, some of them is my imagination, some of them I know that what is to be to live in a provincial culture, in a marginalized place, with lots of resentment for the rich and the successful, which happened to be in another country, in another place. So it was not hard for me to identify with Hassan. And I also think that later I did more or less the same thing for um, the blue and snow, again identifying with a right-wing terrorist. Um, I confess I'm now doing that the same thing in the novel I'm writing now. It's this strangeness in my mind. Farouk, the, um, the elder son of the family, mm-hmm. who's a sort of washed-up historian who doesn't really know what direction to turn in, at one point uses the phrase, what Turkey allows people to be. And it seemed to me that, especially the young characters, were all struggling to try to work out what Turkey would allow them to be and finding different impediments, either financial or ideological or other, other constraints. The atmosphere of the book is made with remembering of the past, frustrations of the present, and deep desire for a better future, whether it's enjoying American, uh, going to America or having a sort of apocalyptic right-wing um, revolution, or just as Recep seeing everyone is happy and living a familiar family life. But everyone is aware of the fact that no one is happy now. Now is full of frustration. Perhaps that's why my characters are always regressing back to memories or projecting themselves with the fantasies of future. What is left for uh, president is frustration and sort of terror of the others. Um, there is also a lack of communication while they talk a lot. But all these the ghosts of the past, the big projects of the Turkish Republic, um, the confusing dreams of youngsters, the recklessness of upper-class rich boys, all put together, composed together to form a whole which I like. And the silence of the house is perhaps this. There's there's a moment again where Farouk remembers a passage in in Praise of Folly by Erasmus, where the reader is invited to think about the earth from the moon and what, what would you see? And the, the answer that his sister Nilgun comes up with is confusion. And I guess the characters are trying to cope with that confusion, aren't they? The novel is also made up with the desire to see everything from above that I also considered putting a narrator who is perhaps flying over all this landscape in a balloon and looking down seeing all all this. We are deeply buried in the inner dialogues of our characters who are buried, are also inward looking or looking for a, a fantasy future. But the reality of the present is intense with terror or frustration or misunderstanding. There is a strong sense of frustration and atmosphere there while the clarity of the movement is a bit uh, sometimes questioned. I thought if you look at from a bit distance, the epic quality, so to speak, would be captured 
more clearly. But in the end, I didn't do it. I, I trusted the reader. I trusted that this is a satisfying picture. These inner dialogue, uh, dialogues would give the reader a sort of a satisfying picture of the whole. Now, one character who is not present in the present time of the book, but who, who is definitely a very influential figure, mm-hmm. is Selahatin, the, 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 the doctor who was the husband of um, the widow Fatima. Mm-hmm. And he had a very grandiose plan, an encyclopedia of all knowledge which would open up Turkey to the West, and it would be based on rationalism and empiricism and, and science and would banish superstition and, and religion. Mm-hmm. And yet his project is one which doesn't come off and, and, and sort of ends up being sort of consumed in his own alcoholism and, and his own obsessions. The first generation of Turkish westernizers, and they were a bit, um, we may call them even young Turks, were enchanted by idea of positivism because perhaps they blamed Islam for the failure of Ottoman Empire. They were strong believers of positivism, not because they thought positivism makes sense, because they didn't want to believe in religion. Uh, they thought Western ideas would save the country, but they wanted to get rid of the influence of Islam. Salatin is a typical in that sense, and typical like in, like many founder uh, generation, many of the members of the first generation of Turkish Republic, demanding too much and too radical in his demands from the nation. The, uh, that he wants to make this big leap forward with modernity, uh, while he can't even address poor sick people in the fishermen's village because they find him a strange guy, a terrifying guy who is claiming that there's no God, so forth and so on. So Salahattin represents, in a way, young Turks. And these people, also believers in the positivism, more or less develop ideas like, well, if we had an encyclopedia that will explain to our people everything about little details of life, what a potato is, what God is about, what is a nation, what is individual, what is elements, what is water, what is mathematics. And if then they read that, they will be like us and the country will embrace modernity fast. There were many encyclopedias and of course the French encyclopedia of Diderot and that generation the way in public imagination they are associated with the French Revolution and Enlightenment rhetorically influence uh, many generations, not only in Turkey, but in Middle East, in the rest of the world. If we also have our, end quote, Enlightenment, achieve these intellectual feasts, then we will, have, we will be also re- reaching the same heights of Western civilization, so to speak. Um, Salatin is a typical product of that kind of radical thinking and also his commitment to his nation and culture is also, in that sense, respectable, but also naive. And it's interesting to see how that ambition changes through the three generations of men, because all three of them want to write and want to somehow capture reality, somehow encompass what it means to be in the world, and yet the project changes as it goes on. And by the time you get to Farouk's generation, he's, he's almost sort of swimming in a whole sea of, of archival material and losing faith, actually, in the ability of history to render the experience, to, to render truthfully the experience of reality. 
both Salatin and Farooq are facing an enormous task of giving shape to lots of human information, lots of information about life. Salatin has more philosophical attitude of revisiting all the objects from an apple to a, a glass, from a pitcher of water to anything in the nature of religion to ask questions about these things and write an encyclopedia and inform people. While his grandson, Farouk, has lots of historical documents in front of him, most of them recorded by court cases, illustrating the life 400 years ago around the same place, but he cannot, he doesn't know what to do with them. He cannot make head or tail of it, of them, because he has a strong sense of history and meaning of history. While his grandfather is naively sure about the strength of his words because he, they will read his encyclopedia and whole nation will almost change their religion, be modern. He is so optimistic about the power of his encyclopedia, which it never finishes, while Farouk, even before he writes it, is absolutely assured of, it, of the powerlessness of the science of history or writing of history. He is in that sense, is not a cynic, but he believes in history, but he cannot make that history because facts are too much, is, this, uh, is away from life, while the novel is embracing life and uh, making a story and, and the unfolding of the story also intertwines, intertwined with the hesitations of the grandfather and the grandson. It's impossible not to read the book and think about the novelist thinking about how to make sense because Farouk is, as you say, really struggling with this question and, and close to giving up and thinking mm. it's impossible. And at the same time, you know, there's the intelligence of the novelist behind it thinking about how the novelist is, mm. is actually making sense. My imagination is busy with historical details from the beginning. I like history in, in two ways. First, I'm an archivist. I'm doing an archive of everything in a sense, my own archive, the Museum of Innocence archive, uh, archive of this, my library. I have that sense, piling up things. Not that I'm not a collector by sensibility, but archivist by, because I want to preserve things. The second sensibility of I have is that of a romantic imagination that, uh, that history addresses my imagination and I want to be embrace history, be in it part of it. In that sense, Farouk in the novel addressed both, but I liked him and I was my mind is busy with him because the romantic imagination that wants to do something with the past, and on that time my mind was busy with how to get Ottoman facts from archives and turn them into stories um, was my one of my essential questions and I was perhaps projecting those energies to that of my character Farouk. So you've got these three generations of men trying to mm-hmm. encompass the big project and yet many of the other characters, Recep the, the dwarf in particular, are really quite sceptical about the ability of words. The, the, the uh, ability of words. Of words that they, Recep often thinks of them v- vanishing, dissolving into air, and, and, and leaving because almost... Because they are making fun of him. Um, Recep is, of course, obviously, 
many problems. First being a dwarf, then people are um, cruel, make fun of him, his position. So he wants to, uh, he wants to convince himself, others' words doesn't touch me. I'm a dignified person. Don't be hurt by these words. He is um, talking to himself and, of course, again, answering these nasty, aggressive right-wing youngsters uh, that make fun of him. But, uh, but also wondering what it's like to have a normal family life from which he feels excluded. But other characters, even, even Fatma, who's, who's 90, puzzles about the, the true nature of herself, as do the teenagers. So it seems to be a common reaction, just feeling that this, the sense of self is fragile or hard to grasp. Yes, perhaps in the silent house, everyone is not at home. While there is a house that they all come uh, together, they're not self-consciously trying to understand why or not they are not at home. Uh, perhaps the novel is helping us to understand why they're discomfortable. And in fact, the home in the story may be Turkey or uh, uh, that there was a, a radical Occidentalist project of modernizing a country which only left the founder of the home uh, house a bit alone, respectable, but not followed enough. Uh, three generations later, everyone is killing each other in the streets, a lot of frustration. It's either some people um, busy themselves with the past or with contradicting dreams of demanding future. Or Han Pamuk. Silent House is out now in hardback. For more information, go to faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another programme. You can make sure you never miss the programme by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.